0: This podcast includes information provided by the issuer and does not express the views of the interviewer. This podcast may also include forward-looking statements by the issuer that involve certain risks and uncertainties to its business. Because forward-looking statements are subject to risks and uncertainties, the issuer's actual results could differ from those indicated in this podcast. Welcome to the Planet Microcap Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Kraft, and thank you all so much for the support and for tuning in. You can follow Planet Microcap on Twitter at Bobby K. Kraft. That's B-O-B-B-Y-K-K-R-A-F-T. And you're listening to episode 44. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to tweet at me or shoot me an email at rcraft, R-K-R-A-F-T, at S-N-N-Wire.com. And when you do get a chance, if you like what you hear, Please rate and review the Planet Microcap podcast on iTunes. It really helps provide feedback for me and spread the Microcap message. I'm very excited to share with you the first ever live Planet Microcap podcast that I recently hosted at the Planet Microcap Showcase 2017 in Las Vegas. My guests for this panel were Chris Irons from geoinvesting.com, Brandon Mackey from Small Cap Discoveries, Jason Hirschman from At8Track18, and Chris Lahiji from LD Micro, all of whom were previous guests on the Planet Microcap podcast. You're probably asking yourself why I ask these panelists to join me for this momentous occasion. I think they provide a healthy difference of experience and insight that they drew upon to tackle tough, difficult questions we continue to ask ourselves each day when covering the microcap stock market. As you will hear, their difference of opinion on certain topics demonstrates that there is no one right way to invest in microcap stocks, and multiple perspectives provides multiple potential answers to the same problem. As Benjamin Franklin famously said, and I quote An investment in knowledge pays the best interest, end quote. The goal for this episode and every episode is to provide more knowledge and insight to help you on your investing journey. I'd like to thank Chris Irons, Brandon Mackey, Jason Hirschman, and Chris Lahiji for joining me on this dais and sharing their perspectives. And I'd especially like to thank everyone who came to the Planet Microcap Showcase 2017. And I look forward to seeing all of you in 2018. And as always... Thank you for tuning in to episode 44 of the Planet Microcat podcast. Please enjoy the first ever live Planet Microcat podcast. All right, everybody, I'd like to welcome you all to our final panel of the day. I run this podcast called the Planet Microcap Podcast, which is all about educating the next generation of investors how to invest in microcap stocks, and i uh, been publishing it since uh, late July 2015, and uh, everybody that you actually see on this panel today uh, has been a guest on the podcast, and I, you probably are probably asking yourselves, why would I ever put Chris Lahegy on this panel, as well as... <laughs> and the. And the reason being is that, you know, I've been going to Chris's conferences for a long time, and, uh, you know, he's really contributed a lot to this space, been around and, and seen a lot. And, uh, you know, I always appreciate having his insights, and I think you definitely will too, as well as Mr. Brandon Mackey, who's a uh, the editor of Small Cap Discoveries, along with Paul Andriola, who spoke a little bit earlier today. He's, uh, I'd say, one of uh, the young up-and-comers in our space that is really following it and, uh, you know, Bringing some awareness the guy's to the years old. <laughs> young up Paint and cover. <laughs> He's hitting
1: a stride. Guy's an ARP member.
0: <laughs>
2: and next, we have Mr. Jason
0: Hirschman, who uh, is uh, a private investor. Goes by the Twitter handle and uh, MicroCap Club handle of uh, 8Track. Uh, I really enjoyed our conversation that we had, and I thought that he'd be a great addition to this panel. And uh, last but not least, i I'm Mr. also local, by the way. <laughs> and he's a local. <laughs> that definitely, helped. no, I'm just kidding. And uh, last but not least, I'd like to introduce Mr. Chris Irons, better known as, quote, the Raven or the Raven. Raven. And uh, Chris and I had a great conversation. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know I'm, just, I'm very excited for you all to hear his insights as well. So with that, I didn't want to provide too much of an introduction because I wanted them to uh, you know, sell themselves uh, first. So uh, as we do with each of the podcasts to start off, I'd like to get everybody's background and who you are and and how you approach investing in microcap stocks. So, you know, let's start with uh, Chris or the Raven. Start with you.
3: All right, hi. Uh, So my name is Chris Hirons. Currently, I actually work with Maj at uh, Geo Investing. And uh, (laughs) awesome, we we gonna make it or what? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, geez. (laughs) <laughs> All right, uh, so uh, currently work with Maj at Geo Investing. Um, my uh, Twitter handle is at QTR Research. I started in 2012 writing under the pseudonym Quote the Raven Research. Um, really, I've been only uh, in the microcaps space primarily, like with a, with a focus on microcaps for probably the last like three or four years since You're I've lucky. been working. What's that? You're lucky. Thank you. <laughs> I'd be lucky if I can get through this opening statement. <laughs> Thank you. Good night, everybody. Opening statement. Oh, that's good, Chris. I don't know what the hell I was saying, but uh, generally, you know, I started investing when I was 18. I lost a lot of money. I learned how to trade uh, equities, options, futures. Just basically lost money doing all of those things. Uh, you know, tons of money. Uh, lost money trading FX for the first time. And so really, you know, I didn't go to school for finance or anything like that. I'm actually a writer by trade. Um, And that just kind of meshed together with what I was doing and learning the capital markets. And so I spent like eight or 10 years just losing money and being miserable. And then finally uh, landed a job working investor relations for a small startup company. So, uh, you know, learned a lot of things from the inside out, working with the CFO, working with securities attorneys, Um, and then eventually after that I started writing and doing research on my own, mostly uh, a lot of short activism, a lot of special situations, things like that, that I really prefer to do. Um, but then when I went to geo investing in 2013, I think I started there was really when I first started to hone somewhat of an expertise in microcaps. And so Mosh covered a a lot of that in his panel, but generally our, if you had to sum up our microcap investing approach, it's information arbitrage, it's, you know, microcaps are nice, because they're a niche of the market that aren't covered by analysts. They're not covered by a lot of people, you know, on the street. And so, if you can do the work, you can do the down and dirty work and get your elbows dirty and read the filings and read the 13Ds and you know all the tiny little print at the bottom of the page. You Can generally find some interesting opportunities. And so, uh, if I had to sum up what we do, I would say it's looking for information arbitrage. Jason.
4: Sure. Uh, my name is Jason Hirschman. Um, I'm your, the classic combination of small businessman by day and uh, investor by night. Um, I've been investing since the uh, mid-90s, basically when I graduated from college. Um, I, I post a lot on the uh, MicroCap Club and also on the uh, Motley Fool boards. Uh, you know, Basically what I do is I've, I've been involved in a family business since, uh, well actually since I've been growing up, kind of like uh, you, Bobby, and, and just take the experiences that I had in, in my you know, running my own business in terms of whether it's product development or, or sales or marketing or being involved in patent lawsuits as a, as a plaintiff or defendant. And uh, the great thing is you can apply those experiences to uh, uh, in the microcap world very, very easily. So, I mean, I think we all know why we invest in microcaps. It's it's a fairly inefficient space. Uh, it's that's that's the benefit of it. You have to do the uh, the hard work. You got to talk to uh, uh, management, you got to look at the uh, filings, and, and that's how you make money. So, um, you know, that's why, uh, I, I, that's why it's an area that I really love to uh, invest in. So, I'll just leave it at that.
2: Hi, everyone. My name is Brandon Mackey. I, uh, during uh, my day job, I work at a food technology startup in Los Angeles uh, called Soylent. We make a tasteless sludge that people live on, if you've ever heard of it. <laughs> if anyone has a- <laughs> ever seen The Matrix, uh, you know that
1: crap <coughs> that came out of the machine, and the guy said this, isn't, Neo says this doesn't taste like anything? That was Soylent. It's, uh,
2: it's kind of a crazy story for another day, but it's founded by my roommates from college. And they called me up a number of years ago to come on board and <coughs> and uh, come h- help grow the company. So that takes up a lot of my time, but I've, I've always had the investing passion, and I write a newsletter with Paul Andreola right over here called Small Cap Discoveries. Um, how this all came about, I'm a chemical engineer by background. Uh, I was working in Houston, Texas, and got the value investing bug and was reading every night Benjamin Graham, Warren Buffett. and had an idea to start a blog, and a, that blog was called Motology, um, if anyone you know read that back in the day. The idea was basically to take Warren Buffett's Moat framework and apply it to microcaps, looking for very niche things. So I was investing in everything from regulatory software companies in London to Swedish brewing companies um, all, all over the world. And through that, I got in in hooked up in the MicroCap Club, and then ultimately connected uh, at LD Micro, which you put on by this gentleman right here. The first time I really met a lot of the people that I would go on to work with um, there, I was a lot of Canadian companies, and uh, one of five people in the room watching the Canadian companies present, and the same five people seemed to be in every one of these presentations. One of them was Paul, and uh, we got linked up writing the newsletter. Uh, Did a brief stint at a hedge fund that uh, found my blog and invited me to to work on. And then, ultimately, my buddies from um, the startup called. And so I moved out to LA about a three years ago and uh, have, have been there ever since.
1: Uh, Brandon, you invested in a Swedish furniture company. Was that company Ikea?
2: <laughs> <laughs> it was. Got in at $0.10. Cents. Oh, they're very nice. <laughs> very nice. Brewing.
1: Yeah, it was actually one of the best uh, biographies I ever read, Ingvar Kamprad, And uh, it really, what was fascinating about Ikea was he basically started selling pens, and it morphed into a massive multi, you know, uh, multinational uh, furniture powerhouse. What makes IKEA so unique isn't the fact that they sell cheap furniture; it's the fact that they can ship furniture more efficiently than anybody else in the world. So furniture making is cheap; it's just shipping it that was expensive. That's what IKEA figured out. But my name is uh, Chris <laughs> And uh, Sorry, that was like, that was like the you know, the more you know, like that NBC <laughs> thing. So. My name is Chris. You know, I've been very fortunate in my life because from a very early age, I knew exactly what I wanted to do. So I got the bug when I was 12, 13 years old. And, you know, my dad, being the first and only client I had, basically uh, trusted me with his life savings, which was roughly a quarter million dollars. And uh, I always say that there's two types of Persians. Okay, so I am Iranian. There are the types that were descendants of the Shah or they kissed the Shah's ass. And they came to this country with a lot of money. Um, and then there were the Persians who didn't kiss Shah's ass and uh, unfortunately had to work for everything. We were, the, we, were the, we were the latter. So he gave me all his money. And he said, look, just please, for the love of God, don't lose it. <laughs> and I lost about 90% of it in the first year. Um, I was big in a company called Fila Holdings. And Fila was very popular in the early 90s. They had one sponsor, and that was Grant Hill. And Grant Hill got injured, and then no one wanted, you know, you don't want to buy the shoes of someone who's always, like, injured or on the bench. So, Fila did not do very well. And what happened, as a result of losing all his money, I basically got in gear. I went to the library on a daily basis. I learned all the things from Graham, from Dodd, you know, from the greats Peter Lynch. um, And I slowly but surely inched my way back up to a quarter million and much, 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 much more than that. But my take is that my goal has always been to own 1% of a 10 million market cap that becomes a billion dollar company. And uh, you know, I still haven't been able to do it. We've been close. Uh, but uh, it's just that pursuit, that, 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 that feeling that you know that the, the next card you're gonna turn is gonna be the ace of spades. And um, you know, for me, it's, uh, given my personality, I tend to you know, be a little bit more volatile than most people, just like the stock market. So it's pretty cool that you know things can change on a dime at any given time. So you always have to be on guard, and you know I'm 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 just really fortunate to be um, you know amongst my peers here, and hopefully we can shed some insight to everyone today.
0: I was going to say coming right back to you because um, one thing Chris uh, didn't mention is that he runs a website called ldmicro.com, where it's uh, it has its own index. And he really, on a day to day basis, is really seeing what's going on in the microcap space. So, my next question, right back to yeah. you, is you know, what, what are some of your observations ju- thus far in the microcap space for 2017? So, what, what to very say?
1: briefly go, I mean, our, our job, I mean, the way I look at it is we want to be the John Stockton of the microcap world. We don't care about how many points we put up, we don't care about how many rebounds or steals, we care about assists. So, what was happening is that over time, we were becoming a you know, larger and larger force in the space and I was looking at all the things that the industry did not have. And one of the big things that we never had was data. And I couldn't understand how there's 100 different sites for small cap and mid cap and large cap, but no one gave a shit about companies, you know, sub 250 million. So we went to a lot of our sponsors and we said, well, is this this on the basis of cost? Or is it just something that is not technically capable for the smallest names? It turns out that it was a money issue. No one could make money selling data in the, in the micro-cap world. So I said, well, what if we don't want to charge anything? What if we give it for free? So a lot of people look at the events, and they say, wow, look at this Chris. He has 80 sponsors and 500 companies that pay him. The first four years, the events didn't make any money. The website doesn't make any money. But now there are a lot of people, hundreds of hundreds of people, and some days over 1,000 that come to the site, and very quickly, within a two to five minute time frame, can see exactly what the smallest names are doing with the index, all the big movers and shakers out of the 11,000 microcaps in North America, get a live news feed, and then be able to screen search the world. So these are all the things that I always wanted access to, but I never had. The logic was, if we were going to build it for ourselves and spend three, four, five, six hundred thousand dollars $600,000, why don't you just make it in a way where everyone has access to that information? So the events were the same thing. I used to go to sell-side conferences all the time, and I would see the same companies over and over and over and over again. So I said, why can't there be a conference that's based off the quality of companies? So as Ron and a few of the people in this room went to the first one, they looked at companies for the first time based off valuation, based off EV to EBITDA, based off book value. And so our take is that data for us in the microcap world will be significantly greater than anything we've ever done on the event side over time.
0: So what, what are you seeing though? You know, like what's been going on in the last like month? Oh and two man, shit's
1: been mean? crazy. I mean, it's, it's, it's really amazing. Like a, one of our largest holdings is a company called Auxilio, A-U-X-O uh, on the NYSE. And um, you know, we've owned this thing for a long time. And for the most part, there were entire quarters, you guys, where there was virtually no trading. No one cared. They've probably traded more in one quarter this year than they have in five years. So it all depends. I mean, the way that I look, at the, I look at the micro-cap world is, and I tell this to executives all the time, imagine bashing a pinata, okay? It's gonna be elusive at first, you know, you're gonna swing as hard as you can, and you're probably not gonna dent it, and you keep beating the shit out of this pinata, and it still has its structure, you know, it still has its vibrant colors, and it irritates you to death. But one of these days, you're gonna hit that pinata, and there's gonna be a dent. And then there's gonna be like an incision. And then that's when you really start hitting it, and then obviously, hopefully, all the candy comes out. It's the same with being a microcap, in the sense that Auxilio put out incredible press releases over a five to seven year span, and no one gave a rat's ass. And now they go to a conference and the stock is up 20%. So it's one of these things where, you know, it only takes you 15 years to become an overnight success. Mm -hmm. So if your company gets selected for that, and you have real liquidity, that's when the valuation really starts to showcase itself. And then there are probably a lot of companies here that still don't trade any shares. Another example is a company called Dynatronics, D-Y-N-T, based out of Salt Lake City, Utah. They do light therapy. This is a phenomenal company. Their co- largest competitor got bought out for one and a half times sales. They're trading at 0.2 times sales. There's some, there's some things that are taking place on the, on the management side that's pretty significant. No one cares. He trades 1,000 shares a day. OK, and those thousand shares are probably me. Okay. So, 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 so it's, it's, it's one of these things where the way that I, I, I kind of see the universe is you buy a little bit, and you, and you don't need to sell, and you stay patient. And then hopefully, God willing, one of these days, there's a lot of, there's a lot of traction. So, but what we're noticing this year is that a lot of these companies are getting traction for the first time in a long time. And it's just really nice to see you know, inflows improving. And they have. Year-over-year year inflows ha- are up a lot um, based off LD Micro data. And the other thing is pipes, from my understanding, are up 70% year-over-year. Year. Most pipes are taking place in microcap. So you have deal flow again. And you could see it in some of these names, the way that they trade. But it's been, it's been basically purgatory for a long time in the microcap world. I mean, from 10 on, you know, some people may have had good years and some people may have had bad. But there was really not much happening until until the last six to nine months. Mm-hmm. So, Brandon, you
0: you cover um, the Canadian space mostly. So, what are, what are you seeing trend-wise going on in, in Canada with amongst these uh, Canadian microcaps? You know, what, what's going on in 2017?
2: Yeah, sure. So, uh, you know, when when I think about that, I, I think about myself, and I'm a U.S. Ba- based investor that invests 100% in Canada. And people ask all the time, like, how is that possible? Why? That's so bizarre. We got to call Trump. don't tell trump but uh i look back and when i started out i was purely looking at valuations and quality of companies i had a criteria i didn't care where they came from as long as i i didn't even care that i could read the financials the swedish company only posted in swedish and i used google translate to read the financials and invest in it so it was purely um, fundamental based and i think a lot of investors in the u.s have got to that point where what maybe always worked in, in the US wasn't working, you know, coming out of the crisis in mm-hmm. um, 2009. And so they started to look at some of the Canadian companies and a lot of the success stories that were coming out of there, these stocks that have gone from $0.10 cents to $3. Um, Biosign, which I don't own, is, is one of the big success stories that got people really uh, interested in the Rx. space. Rx.v. Rx.v, Rx. <laughs> yes. You share the,
0: just for full disclosure, are you currently
2: a shareholder? I have not oh, and, okay. and, uh, and ha- have never been. Um, so, but that was one of the ones I was like, oh man, I missed that. I need to pay more attention to this mm-hmm. space And I think I think a lot of investors in the US um, and, and honestly we see through our newsletter there's people in, in Korea and all over the world Europe, um, Luxembourg like they are getting really interested in the space because they see the return potential where there's few things out there that'll give you any kind of return. And so the, while it's great to be you know long in a position where people are coming in, the reality is is the valuations of a lot of these companies have gone up and You know, I always think about it when I find a very early company that meets our criteria, the growth there, 25% revenue growth, it's two profitable quarters. A lot of times you are finding those at five, six times earnings. Mm -hmm. It would be a very standard number to say like, wow, this is is undervalued, it's a no-brainer. Now when we're first finding these, they're at 15 times earnings, right off the bat. Mm -hmm. And so now maybe you say that the growth is there and it's gonna continue to expand, but you can see that that's a three X. Shift right there, and it's it's a kind of a heuristic that I've been looking at. But there's very few things under 10 times earnings that are just staring at you straight at the face that that make us want to go in and invest, mm-hmm. you know, uh, all in.
0: So, so Jason, what, what's your take on what's going on in 2017 so far?
4: I mean, I, I'm probably like a lot of people in this room in that you know we all tell you, our our friends who aren't invested in microcaps that there's about a gazillion companies to look at, but then they ask you, well, how many did you are you invested in? You say like four. four. Uh, and, and and so basically, I mean, it just comes down to the criteria. If I can find something at a price I like, I buy it. And and but what kind of scares me a little bit is that, I mean, there's and and for the past year or so, I've been talking to more Canadians and Americans when it basically comes to investing. But it does seem like, you know, the Canadian market now there's, there's a lot of eyes on it, and and maybe it's time to come back to America.
1: Well, no, we can't find anything in, in we can't find anything here, so right, we have right. to look in Canada. I I, and I, you're I, doing I the exact inverse.
4: Yeah, but I'm, what I'm saying is that that it just seems like you know like, like Brandon just said you know the values aren't what they were uh, you know i say a couple years ago uh, but you have a lot more eyes looking for it and and, and you know and people are, are sort of trying to copy your formula or the other formula which is okay look for high revenue growth look actually look for companies that have profitability and then they're just trying to game each other so well instead of waiting two quarters maybe i can get in on, on one quarter right and you know and that it can work but it's also a little bit more dangerous you take a lot more risk and so, you know, I, I think there's individual values out there, but it's not as easy as it was. And, and sometimes it's the best thing to be is a little bit more cautious. And, and that's that's the way I feel about the market right well,
0: now. Just to follow up on that real quick, why do you not see it be as easy as it was? Is because there's a lot more eyeballs now on the space. I, mean, I think it, way, I, I think way, I think way, it got
4: very, it? very cheap in you know, at, at basically early 2015. I mean, there were a lot of people who were microcap investors, and they were just depressed. Uh, you, know, you know, you had to like, <laughs> you basically had to quote like Ibertson, you know data to your friends in order oh, to like dude. justify being a microcap investor. It and you know, and now things have changed some, right? You can actually point to, to good performance in your own portfolio. You can look at other stocks that have you know that really had great runs, and you can say you know there's there's a good reason to be a microcap investor. But you know, success is like you know the seed of failure in some ways, and you know people start looking at other people's success. And, and instead of playing to their own game, they start playing to other people's games, and, and that's how you that's how you lose money. So, you know, my feeling is like, look, you know, I do very well, and so everyone here does very well. You know, you don't have to become a billionaire overnight. So, you know, be patient and wait for your—wait for your—you know—wait for something in your—you know—in your, you know, in your uh, swing, uh, swing areas, swing zone, and then—and then swing. So, uh, you know, if I find one, one or two companies a year, I'm a concentrated investor. That's—that's that's fine for me. Mm-hmm. So.
0: All right, so Chris, what, what's your take? What do you see what's going on here? I'd...
3: Well, I would, uh, <laughs> first off, I'll just say, you know, as, as a short seller and somebody that works primarily in special situations a lot, you know, my favorite type of investing is to find some type of enormous volatility in an equity or a company, whether it's, you know, somebody has come out with a short report or, you know, there's been, uh, you know, they're d- conducting an internal review of the financials or something like that, and then trying to actually deduce what the facts are quicker and, and faster than anybody else. Um, so I used to, and unfortunately still do, uh, go to Microcap conferences also to look for great shorts because you know wh- what they're saying is uh, there's there's nothing to find because where you would go and look for a company that it has two quarters of profitability and you know has a fantastic balance sheet and has finally already turned the corner, um, you know that those companies are drying up or they're becoming investable or discoverable now at higher multiples. Yeah, and and wh- what I would. You know, I, uh, what I would say almost you know, uh, as a challenge or as a respectful disagreement or whatever is if you look to try and find companies, and this is what we try and do a lot of, certainly we like companies that are simple, you know, free cash flow generative companies that are already profitable and have fantastic balance sheets and certainly investing like that is a fantastic way to invest and I'm sure it's led to a lot of successes. What I would also say is, there's something to be said for going and taking a look at a company that may not have the best balance sheet, may not have two, you know, profitable quarters behind it, may not, you know, be cash flow generative, but perhaps has a narrowing loss, or you know, like Maj was saying earlier, uh, a company with some type of special situation in place. Um, one company we dealt with had. You know, an overhang, a liability, a pension fund liability. And nobody wanted to, you know, I don't, we don't know if any, nobody knew about it or nobody just wanted to bother with it. But, you know, it just seemed like, oh, everybody just stay away because they've got this overhang. And then when that clears up, you know, the stock will be okay to invest in. And it's like, yeah, that's great. Because everybody else that doesn't want to do the work and doesn't want to look at it, they're all going to discover it once the pension liability overhang is taken care of. Everybody knows that, right? And so what we try to do occasionally also seek out situations where a company is maybe four quarters or three quarters behind where he's trying to discover companies. We're looking for the inflection point that's going to allow us to access an investment in a company, perhaps before they're even profitable, perhaps when they have a special situation, an overhang or something like that that's going to uh, eventually be resolved one way or another. So while certainly it's a riskier way to invest, It's definitely, see, the thing about investing early with micro-cap companies, we like micro-caps because they're small, right? Smaller companies, they trade like options. They have enormous runways in front of them, so you can make ridiculous returns. You can make 100%, you can make 1,000%, you can make 10,000%. I mean, Maj was buying Monster Beverage at something like $2 a share. I don't know what it was. But way, way back. It was called
1: Hanson's Natural, huh, Maj? (laughs) Yeah, right. What was the market cap? I know, because I was in there. (laughs) And then I sold it at like nine and laughed at people who bought it at nine and a half, and it's now like $2,000 a share. (laughs)
3: It's kind of stupid. Sorry. Sorry, Raven. That's okay. So, anyways, (laughs) Maj invested in in, in Monster back when it was like 2 or $3 a share or whatever. And and like I was saying, the reason we like microcaps is because they have this enormous runway in front of them, right? If you invested in... You know, a company like Monster, which is a billion dollar company now, multi-billion dollar company now, you know, if you were in there at one million, you were in there at $10 million market cap, you were in there even at a $100 million market cap, you've made an insane multiple of your money, right? It's been ridiculous. The crazy thing is the math behind that is such that the investment returns can be exponentially higher the earlier you get in. So if you go buy a call option for a penny per share and it goes to a dollar per share, you've made a hundred times your money. But if you wait two, three, four quarters until the call option is a quarter, you know, you make four times your money. And certainly, again, there's, there's something to be said for that because it's okay to be safe and it's okay to be conservative. But what we do is we pepper in a lot of trying to find companies before that inflection point. Because if you can get that, if you can get access to management and you can find out information that the sell side either doesn't care about, they don't bother looking for... That's really where you have an opportunity to make ridiculous investments. So, you know, we, we certainly do a lot of looking for cash-generative companies with fantastic balance sheets. You know, we've also, uh, you know, in maybe trimming through a bunch of our companies that were potential shorts, have inadvertently come up with a long thesis or two and, uh, and discovered companies early on. So just to round out what I'm saying and, and actually address your question now... Um, <laughs> You know, uh, basically I agree with everything he said, which is, you know, microcaps are at a point thank where you, they're I was pointing to him, oh, not you. you. <laughs> <laughs> Next time I'll you be clear. Um, so Jesus Christ. I lost my cue. But anyway, I'm telling you,
1: man, I'm his kryptonite tonight, dude. You can't you know,
3: every time no. The, were, the the point of the matter is certainly what he's saying is correct. Um, this space and people are, are kind of moving to the space now, and that's why these valuations are being pressed up, where companies that it used to be able to find at five or six times earnings, you know, are now at 10 or 15 times earnings. It's also a product of the overall market frothiness that we have, which is a kind term for, you know, complete insanity, which is what I call it. But, uh, you know, certainly, uh, uh investing a little bit earlier on allows you to maybe access that inflection point, so...
0: I was going to say, that actually ties right into my next question, which uh, we talked a little bit about on our, uh, our, our, our pre-con meeting. Um, and, and what I really want to know is, you know, how do you guys see certain macro events affecting the microcap space? So here, Chris, let's, or Raven. I'm going to go by Raven, Raven you for you. Yeah, whatever Because we've got two uh, Chris's on here. So I'm going to go Raven and Lahiji. So Raven, let's, let's go back to you real quick on this, and then, uh, and then I'll, we'll... Make our way down the line.
3: Well, I just think you know, this dovetails from what I was just saying, right? Which is people are starting to discover microcaps. I mean, the cool thing is, everybody here, we're all kind of in the know, right? That like, these companies fly under the radar, right? Goldman Sachs isn't covering them. JP Morgan's not looking for their investment banking business, so they don't really give a shit what the company's doing. You know, they, you know a, a large sell side fund doesn't want to go out and close a $5 million financing because they have better things to do. And so the nice thing for people like us is we know that there's a relatively small select group of people that have access to this information and care enough about it to look at it. So that's why microcap investors have such an enormous advantage. To tie that into the macro picture, the nice thing that I would say is that microcaps aren't always a beta trade, meaning they don't always move with the market. Um, That's obviously sucks when the market is doing what it's doing now, but that can actually sometimes work to our benefit uh, if you're from the same school of thought that I am, which is basically that, you know, the economy really actually hasn't had a recovery here in the last eight years, and we're basically going to be uh, heading for an enormous disaster, which I know doesn't sound great, but unfortunately, that's how I feel. Down um, fifty
1: thousand, baby.
3: Yeah, I think uh, I think the Fed has done equity markets a horrible disservice. Um, I think interest rates will never go up again because the United States will not be able to service its debt. I think we're going to see hyperinflation. I think, ah. you know, I, I like gold. I like precious metals. You know, so I'm kind of like one of those doomsday conspiracy theorist guys. But the nice thing for microcap <laughs> investors <laughs> is, uh, what's that? No, no. Do you agree with me? No, I no, don't. No. No. Well, well, I'm going to go <laughs> take that as you agree with me, anyways. Gold, at is at least, $50, dollars, apartment. baby. Long live fiat currency. Woo! Just to close out what I was saying, um, you know, I think that uh, microcap investors have an advantage because they're not always tied to the market. So if all hell breaks loose, you know, it's not going to change the fact that a little $10 million company is, is cash generative and is doing well and you know, hopefully selling a product that is going to continue to be in demand. So
1: I respectfully disagree with Raven. And the reason is, remember what happened in '08 and '09? Everything. It didn't matter what it was. It imploded. Volumes dried up. Everything was down 70 80%. The worst part is, in microcap, you have a high degree of risk going to any of these companies because what you buy is probably what you can't sell. And then when everyone is just selling shit across the board, you know, it's like shoot first and ask questions later. They were things that were basically completely discarded. Another thing is for you Canadian guys, wasn't it a couple years ago when your venture exchange was down like 80%? An entire exchange is down like 80%? Now, granted, they were all... You know, BS mining, gold mining. 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 Yeah. I got two trillion ounces of gold out there. It's like, how much <laughs> money did you make last year? We lost eighty-five million. It's like, oh, okay, cool. But look, the the consensus is that we are almost like you know we're at the tip of the sword. So we get you know we get uh, it seems like we get the benefit last and we get hit first.
3: Chris, would you agree that would you agree that micro caps, uh, you know are less are probably in terms of all the different sizes of companies from, you know, nano caps to uh, mega caps, whatever you call the big guys, that, that they're probably the least correlated to the overall market? Would you I agree would agree with, with that? that, Raven, yes. Okay, I rest my case. Because that's all I was rest trying to say. Rest what case? That's a, well, that's all I was trying to say. I was just, I was just trying
1: to do say Do you that agree that,
3: that two times two is four? I do. The point I was trying to make that everybody here seems to understand, but you don't, was that they're the least correlated to the market. So they they may not be the safest bet if everything crashes, because, of course, if everything crashes, there's going to be pressure across the board. Raven is right. But the point of the matter is I I find that they're the least correlated. You know, if a market moves down 80%, Apple's moving down 80% with it. But if a market moves down 80% and you own a microcap that is thinly traded and a liquid, which are the points that he's bringing up, it's not necessarily going to make the same move.
1: You're right. It's going to be bankrupt.
3: Oh! <laughs> the decline in the price of an equity... <laughs> I love how to make my can own I just sound effects nobody else oh, The, grace, the grace. decline in the price of an equity would not cause a company to go bankrupt if they're cash flow positive or they're profitable. You are correct. I know. <laughs> Jason, care to comment? Well, I'm I just
4: going I, 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 I I mean, I to... I don't even know where to start. <laughs> I don't even know where to start. But, but let me yeah, just yeah. actually just, just finish where you said like... One of the advantages of being in microcaps is that you can like access information. But I think, in some ways, the next frontier is actually almost to create information. I don't mean like pumping, but I mean actually to, like cre- like create like insight. And just I just want to give you an example, and I won't I won't use the name. But there was a you know a Canadian company that was sued uh, the at the basically the end of 2015 uh, in, in basically an automotive like paint protection film. And you know, partly this is one of the advantages of coming to like conferences like this. You meet people, and I basically uh, had a friendship, made a friendship with an uh, investor up north, who I think you'll be interviewing soon, uh, mm-hmm. uh, Meredith. And, and, and basically, the way, the way we actually created information and created insight is by taking the film and actually bringing it to laboratories, reverse engineering it, and then determining that it did not infringe you know, in, the, in this patent lawsuit. Okay, and, and that's you know, a way to actually, I think it's, it's the next step, spend some money when you get opportunities like that, and you can, you know, to, to go out and, and actually get insight way beyond just even talking to management, mm-hmm. and so you know, obviously opportunities don't come along like that too often, but I, I do think it creates another another way really to profit, you know, as in the microcap market because you know if it was Apple, everyone's going to look at the, the validity of the patent, they're going to test things out, but in microcap nobody does that work, so you actually got to team up with people who have other skills besides just investing. Mm-hmm. And, and basically, together, you really off can, you know, can bring something to, to the party. And, and basically, for me, that allowed me, for like a seven-month stretch, basically, to be 40% of the buy volume mm-hmm. in that stock. Uh, and we did very, uh, did very well with it and hopefully Expelled. do even more. Uh, but so this, I think that's really the next, the, the next step of, you know, like basically, like, like you said, like private placements, but also looking for opportunities really to, to, to bring in other points of view that to really, you know, create value by creating new sources of information. So, just just a thought no no absolutely so
0: I, m- I wanted to get to my next question this one I wanted to to go to a uh, Brandon on okay. and we've kind of touched on it a little bit already and and I I can almost forecast a little bit of what you might say to this question but you know where where do you currently see value in the microcap space and uh, if look let's preface it's probably gonna be Canada I know that's yeah. what you're gonna say but uh, but maybe let's get a little deeper as to why Canada, right now specifically, especially after it's kind of getting a little, um, I don't know, it, 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 there's been, been a little bit more awareness for it.
2: Sure, uh, I'll, I'll start, I just want to add a couple comments on the discussion, the last oh, question. Yeah, sure. uh, yeah I, I, we had a great dialogue in the call before this, um, and it seems like we're on one team and they're on another team. <laughs> we did
1: not. And uh, I I've like always David.
2: felt that you know, economic doom saying it's a, is a fun hobby, but it's an expensive hobby. Meaning that if you look at the people that have been saying this you know, since I bought my first stock in August 2011 when the S&P went down 500, there's, there's been people that have been saying the same narrative that you know, high, you know, in, inflation and monetary policy and the Fed were all doomed. And the, you know, I imagine that those people have, A, either lost a lot of money just outright on their trades, or B, more importantly, they've missed a lot of opportunity You know to go long and that doesn't mean you can completely ignore the macro environment but the way i like to think about incorporating macro in my framework is almost like you play the macro through the micro meaning like you look at your individual stocks and if one of them is overvalued then you're selling based on that and that typically correlates to when the overall macro is is frothy but you're not doing it because you have some viewpoint on the macro and that's kind of the framework that we've tried to employ and i think that's what we've been doing in canada some of these things that get Institutionally owned, and they run up too fast. Um, you know, we've been taking some off the table and, and moving to cash, and then you can look, you know, six months, twelve months down the road, and be like, "Well, I'm now significantly in cash." But it's not like I woke up one day and read some news story and got scared and went thirty percent into cash. It happened very systematically through evaluating each each position. Um, and, and so, where do we see value then? So, um, well, real quick before we get to that, I,
0: I just I wanted to give uh, Raven a chance to respond because be I think brief. it was kind of oh? like a,
3: I'll, be, I'll be very. Brief. Yeah. Fire away. Yeah. <laughs> so, so look, he he's a hundred percent right. When uh, basically w- what he says is, you know, doomsday sayers and and people that go on TV and say, you know, the whole world is screwed, have, have probably lost money here and there. Also, I mean, the market undeniably has gone up over time, right? So, if you invested a dollar in the market
1: <laughs> yeah. in the nineteen thirty, yeah, exactly. It's,
3: what's that? It's worth a lot. I mean, it's, it's huge. Yeah, yeah, that's what I was going to say actually. Um, so if you invested a dollar in the market in the 1920s, and just, just let me get through this here, all right? Just give me two minutes. If you invested a dollar in the market in the 1920s, you made a ton of money, right? It's It's worth whatever. It's worth a million dollars today or whatever, right? This is a question of ideology, right? That nobody's denying that the stock market continues to go up. Which is why Warren Buffett gets on TV and he says, You know, I'll oh, buy stocks that, you know, I want to own for 30 years. And they say, Well, Warren, what do you think about, you know, 2008? All hell's breaking loose. You know, people are losing their jobs and unemployment's, you know, at record numbers. And what he says is, You know, well, the stock market's going to be higher in 30 years than it is today. And so what I do is I just buy companies that I want to own for 20 and 30 years. Like Kraft. And, and by the way, I knew I wasn't going to get through it. But, anyways, by the way, He's absolutely right, right? He's made a fortune by buying and holding, right? So th- there's definitely a case for that. But at the end of the day, it's a question of ideology, right? If you buy into Keynesian theory, right, which is essentially that the Federal Reserve needs to protect markets and needs to protect equity markets for benefit of investors, then you don't buy into free market capitalism for the most part, right? The, the Austrian School of Economics say that bubbles bursting And, you know, booms and busts should happen naturally. And with that is gonna come some volatility. And that's a good thing, because that's the market correcting and readjusting itself and whatever. But the reason the stock market has gone up since the 1920s is because of earnings growth, but it's also because of inflation. And inflation is this thing that has been made up and is now managed by the central bank, which is 50 years ago, this guy says to me, I could get a, I could get a cup of coffee for five cents, right? <laughs> and today, a cup of coffee costs $4.95. And nobody really gives a shit about that, and nobody says anything about it, because everybody just expects it. Yeah, prices go up, so what does it mean, right? Prices go up because the Federal Reserve has printed an enormous amount of money, and inflation, under Keynesian theory, is supposed to be a good thing, right? Free market capitalism is supply and demand will drive the prices, right? You should have a relatively finite set amount of whatever your currency is going to be. And by the way, before you laugh at gold bugs and doomsday sayers or whatever, gold is up 400% over you know, the last 15, 20 years. And it's also outperformed the S&P over the last five to 10 years. But whatever, I'm cherry picking my numbers a little bit and I'll admit to that. But the point of the matter is, if you buy into Keynesian economic theory, which is that Janet Yellen needs to manage the equity markets because we can't, you know, we can't handle a 1% correction, or we can't handle a 5% correction, all that does is lead us to huge problems. And we're going to have huge problems again, because we have been issuing debt at 0% or close to 0% since 2008, right? Interest rates can't go any lower. So if you look at a historical historical chart of interest rates, interest rates used to be 5%, they were 10%, they were over 10% at one point. And what you see, since the Federal Reserve has taken control, is you see interest rates lower every time that we have some type of economic turmoil, which is the Fed saying, holy shit, we have to do something because everybody's panicking. And then you see them rise a little bit, but they make lower highs and lower lows every time they manage them. Well, now we're at zero, and we can't raise rates again. So we have the option of going to negative interest rates, or we have the option of QE4, which will probably be next. And all I'm arguing, and I'm not I'm not disagreeing with you that buy and hold investing is a great way to make money, because it certainly has. I'm just buying into the fact that at some point, something will have to give. And what will happen is you will be taxed because prices will go higher. If productivity stalls out and prices start to go higher, it's a tax on everybody that people don't understand because the average person goes to the store and buys a gallon of milk today, and it's $4 instead of $2, which it was just a year or two ago, even though the Fed's saying CPI is only up 2%. It's a tax on everybody. So I think, Keynesian economic theory, it just doesn't make sense to me. Free market capitalism, supply and demand driving the outcome, that's all basic economic theory. Everybody should understand that. So the reason I'm a proponent for gold, and also the reason you see things like Bitcoin go from zero to $1,300. I mean, this is a thing that doesn't even exist. It's because it's limited in number. <laughs> there's only 21 million of these that will be printed, right? And I, so I, I think we should get a chance to The demand, to I, I'm
2: done. I'm done. I'm okay, done. Okay, I really okay, The okay, demand okay. is driving <laughs> yeah. the price up. <laughs> go, go ahead. I'm sorry. I
3: didn't mean to take no, that long. Well,
2: I mean, you, you can recognize all that, but you're always left with the question, what do you do about it? Yeah. And like, if prices sure. are going up, would you rather have cash or would you rather have assets? Yeah, so that's a, always been Warren of, Ru- Buffett's you know, There's argument. a lot of ruin in a. Great nation, right? So you could be
4: right, but you could be so early, it makes no difference. You're right. uh, you know, right? So another right. you know, th- th- thing is as a microcap investor, I would just say that you know we all are attracted to like nonlinear situations. That's what, partly why we like being a non, uh, you know microcap investor. And I think there may be a tendency, not saying for you, but no but but, but uh, you know for, for people to project nonlinear you know situations occurring on the macro level, right? Mm-hmm. We see nonlinear situations everywhere. And that's not necessarily true. It's, it's very different for the individual company and, and, and a system-wide occurrence. So, you know, and basically, even like you take the U.S. dollar. I mean, it basically bottomed out what in 2011 or so. So it's
3: it hasn't bottomed out yet.
4: Oh,
2: uh, okay.
3: The strongest <laughs> currency in the world, baby. Every the best of the worst. It's, it's only has the its I made a mistake with that last comment, by the way. It's only the strongest in the world because we have a, a global confidence game going right now where everybody in the world has agreed that it's the strongest currency in the world, just like everybody in this room has agreed when they take a $20 bill out of their pocket that sheet of paper is worth something. It's really not. You can't go get something finite from that. It's backed by the faith of the United States government. So if everybody buys in, that's where there's some value. That's what he's saying. You know, it's the strongest currency in the world. It's the most reliable. But you know, I-, I would argue that a lot of great empires have fallen due to the currency falling apart. I don't think it's gonna happen tomorrow. I don't think it's gonna happen the next day. I have a buy and hold portfolio that I have a 10, 20, 30 year time span on, so I don't completely disagree. I just think it's worth being mindful of a different ideology and a different outlook on things other than Janet Yellen is always gonna save us or Ben Bernanke is always gonna save us. By the way, Alan Greenspan is out over the last four, five, six weeks saying almost exactly what I'm saying. And you know, 20, 30 years ago, he wasn't interested in this theory because he was the guy in charge. So if all hell broke loose, he was going to be the guy who was on the hook for it. But now that he's not on the hook for it, he's saying a lot of things that make a lot of sense that are starting to sound a little bit Austrian. So
1: His senility is getting to him. Alan Greenspan is also probably 90 years old right now.
3: So here's, here's what's interesting. <laughs> that means he has a lot of experience. It's true, though.
1: So let me, let me tell you guys something very quickly. What's interesting is that to the, to the average person, you would think that Raven and I would be on opposite ends of the spectrum. The reality is that but we both categorically agree on a lot of these things in the macro picture. I was I was uh, uh, the perma bear on Fox News before Peter Schiff, and Peter shift now has basically become, you know, uh, how can I put this, the, the, the champion of the short trade. And I think that everything that Raven says is correct. I mean, the CPI is complete bullshit because it doesn't factor the two most important things, which are food and energy. But... You cannot dispute the fact that if you went bearish a long time ago and you went bullish a long time ago, the bulls have destroyed the bears. You cannot dispute it. The thing that made Buffett the, ge- the genius and the, the, the guy who gets all the reverence in the world is he was the only guy who would buy something and never sell it. That was, his, that was his difference. But my overall take is that there is no way we can continue to close our eyes and put our fingers in our ears and not realize what we're doing. A lot of these problems that we have are massive. They are systemic. These are not things that can be fixed with policy, or Trump saying, we got to make America great again, <laughs> or you know, some guy coming out and easing Fed rates by a quarter. This shit has already happened. The analogy that I always use is, remember the movie Titanic. Remember the architect of the boat. He takes out that blueprint, and he says, look, if we could stop it in two, two columns, The ship would be fine, it wouldn't sink. You know, unfortunately we're at three columns. So we know the inevitable is gonna happen. The dilemma has been postponed for so long that they'll never let it truly reset. Look at Japan. What fascinates me about Japan is all the things that we're doing now or we have done in the last few years is what Japan did in the 80s. And Japan is a much larger economy than us. Okay, I think people would agree with that. And they had the best case scenario take place. They've had virtually zero growth for the last 30 years. That's a best-case scenario. I don't think we're going to be as lucky. Can
3: I just say, uh, you know... We you can't didn't... disagree. I just agreed with you. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. Seriously. You know, what, what he's saying is we're, we're not going to let it get out of control because we've come this far, right? So we're going to continue, you know, government stimulus will continue. But at some point, we may not have a choice. And that's the point I'm trying to make. And just two really other quick things. Peter Schiff isn't really the champion of the short trade. He's the champion of, <laughs> he's the champion of Austrian economics. Okay, and, and essentially, if you went out and you went long gold in the 70s, when we took the dollar off the gold standard, That was a bad idea. You've made fantastic returns. That's true. Right? You've made astronomical returns. You've probably outperformed the equity indices. And today... You have an asset that's physical, that you can touch, that's basically been a currency for 5,000, 6,000 years. Maj disagrees with me on all this stuff, by the way, too. So we have a lot of spirited discussions in the office. But but the point is, you have something tangible. You're not holding a Federal Reserve note that can just be printed tomorrow. You're holding something that has, until the asteroid hits at least, a relatively limited demand of. And the very last thing is, Donald Trump ran on a platform that we were in a bubble, OK? Donald Trump campaigned, and, and he got a lot of votes. Because during his campaign, he said, we're in the middle of a big, fat bubble. And he even joked about getting Yellen out of there. Because he said, these companies are loading themselves up with debt. I mean, you look at companies like Sun Edison, You look, like, look at companies like Valiant. It's companies that had access to capital and became so irresponsible with it that they've gone under. So he ran on this, this whole thing of, you know, we're in a bubble, and now all of a sudden that he's in office, and he got a lot of votes like that, too, people I know voted for him based on that, thinking, wow, maybe he has a little tinge of an Austrian economic policy. But now it's, you know, the Dow's at 21,000. <laughs> 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 thanks, Donald, you know, we, we think this is a, uh, an accurate representation of how the economy is doing. It's like, we don't understand that the economy and equity markets are two completely different things, you're not going to get
1: it donald trump will say anything to anybody
3: all right so now uh, real quick and
0: this will be my last question before we get to audience questions and just to follow up on what's been said in that in this last uh back and forth you know just to bring it all back to the fact that we're here we're at a microcap conference there's a lot of microcap investors here <laughs> right and, um, you know how, what should they do with this type of information you know with with some of this theory that you guys are putting out there you know how how would you advise or how would you, what, what would your be, be your, I guess, advice for, for some of these investors here? I don't would listen subs- to anything I w- <laughs> I would, that we have said would in would the last 35 minutes. Buy Amazon.
2: <laughs> Buying great companies with we earnings and revenue. The guy, that was up here, a share. the guy that
3: was up here at 4 o'clock that's running a newsletter that's looking at microcap you know, metal, essentially mining companies, you don't have to go 100% of your portfolio in mining. But this gentleman is running a newsletter pointing out microcaps that are in the mining space. So why wouldn't you have a little bit of exposure in it?
4: Jason, I would just say that you know tomorrow I'll be meeting with you know a company that makes karaoke machines, and I really don't give a rat's ass what the price of gold is going to do two years from now and how it's going to affect the karaoke market, but I do care about you know well, you know what's the adaption of, of karaoke machines along the border where there's a you know high Hispanic population and, and they seem to be attracted to that or, or expanding to the toy market and what's the opportunity there I mean that's that's really the questions that matter so I, mean, I, I think the thing to do is you just I mean if you, if you want to put some part of your portfolio in gold or some other just for optionality's sake or, or to protection you know go ahead but but basically you, you got to get down to the nitty-gritty and that's that's how you made a lot of money in the past and that's how you are going to make a lot of money in the future. Brandon.
2: Yeah, I I was joking, but I was also pretty serious at the same time. I think that (laughs) the more that you can, you know, tune out the media, tune out the news, trust no one, um, and stay laser focused. And, and, you know, you have to truly believe that somewhere there is an entrepreneur at a company that's turning around, and they have a new product and a new idea, and the revenues are there and the cash flows are there. And you only need a couple of those to really make life-changing returns. You know, I've seen it. Um, in a lot of other people's portfolios, the last five years, my own portfolio, and really bought into this idea that if you can stay 100% focused on the micro, then you know the macro will take care of itself. And yes, sometimes it's harder, sometimes it's easier, but. The more you stay focused on something that you can tangibly understand and look at, and a management team that you can call, and financials that you can review. And in, in Canada, at least in Microcaps, there's simple financials. You know, you can get the picture. Like as Paul said earlier, 90% of what you need to know is in the financials. And the more time you spend looking at the news, the less time you're going to spend thinking about the financials. So, for sure. Turn off, yeah. Throw away your TV.
1: I think all of this is great advice. Read LV Micro. No, I think all of this is great <laughs> advice. And- But my take is, whatever you feel comfortable in, just buy half, okay? The way that I look at it is my wife is an auditor. So I try to do something where if I lose everything, it's still a small enough amount that she won't get pissed off. (laughs) So that's kind of the strategy. You know, it's like, what was that in Patriot? Aim little, miss little? I I, I try to take that with microcaps because you don't know. You don't know with, I mean, mean, we're just basically... in the scheme of things, in the financial world, just think about it. The 1,000 companies that make the index, DLD micro index, are 38% of the size of Amazon. Mm-hmm. That's pretty insignificant on a, on, a, on a bigger scale. So the take is they make it impacted pretty quickly. Uh, so we've always had the, the mantra where you know, we'll never have you know, positions bigger than 5 or 6%. Because I've seen the worst thing that can happen is someone gets absolutely obsessed with a company. And it happened with me. And I lost a lot of money. It was Premier Exhibitions, PRXI. You know, it was just one of those things where we wrote it from one to fifteen, self great. It got cracked at thirteen. We bought a bunch of thirteen, and we sold it at a dollar. So we paid all the taxes on the upside, and we made no money on the downside. We lost everything on the downside. So the consensus is, you should never be. Your investment should never take, you know, uh, you know, a, a second life, if you will. You know, where if you lose the money, it's fine. But to, to, to Brandon's credit, you can also really focus on, there's, there's an entire contingency of people that say, look, I'm gonna focus on three or four names because if they are successful, I don't have to look anywhere else, which is perfectly valid, just make sure you're not wrong.
0: Mm-hmm. So, sorry, one last question before we get to audience <laughs> questions. We do have, we have like, we have, we have some time. And because, you know, we're here, we're at an investor conference. Sorry. Yeah, no, 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 it's okay. <laughs> You know where where everyone here will be going to presentations and taking one on ones. You know, so how do you how do each of you? And let's keep it at like a minute thirty each, max. Just saying. You know, um, <laughs> I'm not talking directly to you, Chris. I swear. <laughs> um, uh, <laughs> uh, but you know, how, how do each of you approach assessing a potential investment at events like this? You know, in other words, what are, what are some of the qualitative measures that you do look for? And uh, Chris,
3: what's our So I'll make it really quick. Qualitatively, obviously, you know, he summed it up perfectly, right? You want a simple business that hopefully is cash generative and has a good balance sheet, can withstand a little bit of volatility. They've got a moat around their business. You know, they're, they're, uh, uh, they're doing something that, you know, they have some room for growth. They have a runway to growth. Um, and uh, not quantitatively, qualitatively, um, you know, you can back things up a little bit further in company history and look for those inflection points. Uh, that we were talking about. You know, read a little bit, talk to management, go beyond the numbers a little bit, because it's not, it's not always completely about the numbers. Mm-hmm.
4: Jason? Uh, what I'll, I'll add is that a, a lot of microcaps, the reason why they exist is because they promise to have a better product or a better service. Uh, and that may be a good reason why they exist today, but if they're gonna exist in the future, it's because they, ac- they can actually sell. Uh, and I, I think sometimes we don't talk enough about the sales cycle and how good they are in terms of just being salesmen. Uh, not, not in terms of selling their own stock, uh, but in terms of just actually selling the product or service they're, 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 uh, they're, they're making. And so what I like to do is ask a lot of questions about you know, what kind of sales organization they have, uh, you know, who's heading it, what kind of importance it has. You just gotta get a sense of whether they're as good at sales as they are in terms of developing this new product or service. Uh, Cause it's, that's really probably gonna be the crucial element of whether they, uh, uh, they make money or lose money and why they're, they're around or, or
2: they're not around in a few years.
0: That's interesting a lot of recent news um, Brandon
2: yeah so one, one of the things that I, I've employed over the years that I really try and do is all the you know when you're at these conferences you're gonna hear a lot of you're gonna hear a lot of stories and it, being able to research the company in advance and looking at the filings and kind of forming your own opinion, helps to put you in a good state of mind when you start talking to companies. When I first went to LD Micro, Chris put 35 companies on my schedule that I had not selected nor ever heard of in my life. All
1: deep values, baby.
2: All revenue I didn't know until today that all you buy is Canadian.
1: (laughs) I mean, that is like the most sacrilegious thing I've heard in years. I only buy Canadian stocks, and I'm based out of Los Angeles. (laughs) You know the Canadian mafia is going to beat me up after this.
2: And so I, I was talking to a lot of companies that were just really just stories, and everything sounded great. And I just wanted to get on my phone and buy you know thousands of shares right off the bat. And woke up the next morning like, oh my god, what was I thinking? Like you look up some of these things, and and it's important to have going into the story so that you're you're almost you're prepared. You know, you know the story. You're talking to management. And if you come prepared with questions, you're going to have a lot more value versus yeah, show me the presentation. I've never heard of this before. Um, you know, management's given that story a thousand times already that day, and to, to have a full question set helps guide the conversation, you're going to get a lot more actionable insights coming out of that. Chris?
1: Look, my, the reality is that most of the microcap companies today will probably not make people any amount of money. That is the harshest reality of all. With that being said, everyone is looking for those one or two ideas, like the Hanson's Naturals, you know, like the Tasers that have something distinctive. But you guys know better than anybody else, this is a tried and tested room. The smaller a company is, the more important management becomes. You go to conferences to meet with management. You want to ask tough questions. You want to see how much skin they have in the game. You want to see how many raises they've done and how many times they put their own money within the raise. So there are obviously a lot of variables that can extract the story that they're telling and the story that is ultimately reflected. Mm-hmm. So my no one comes into this saying that I'm gonna buy 50 companies and 40 of them are gonna go up and 10 of them are gonna go down. That ratio is way worse than you think. But it's just like poker. When you know something, you bet big. And I've seen it happen before. Even in our own history of trading for 15 years, I can only count with you know one hand the times that we've made over 10 to 15x our money. But those are the investments that allow us to be speculative. Those are the investments that allow us to make investments in a lot of other companies. And then what you do is you peel the onion. You keep peeling it, you keep peeling it, and then you see what is left in the end. At this conference, there's gonna be one or two big winners. The question is, are you gonna be at the right place at the right time?
0: Amen to that, and I think with that, let's open it up to uh, questions. You're back? I had a
1: question for uh, Chris. Uh, Chris Lahici, <laughs> not Chris <laughs> the Raven. <laughs> <laughs> uh, over uh, the last few years, it seems there's a lot less
2: small companies uh, going
0: public mostly going to private equity around funding. Do you see this trend uh, changing in the future, maybe after some economic turmoil? I sure Oh, Chris, real quick, let me just repeat the question. Oh. And I know you love this question. Oh, I do. Yes. So an um, easy 20 foot. <laughs> <laughs> so Chris, the question, the question was, um, is that, you know, why do you think a lot of these companies are going to private equity, not enough new names are
1: uh, going public? My man, this is, this is the question for the next 10 to 15 years, is I think the reason why no one's really going public anymore is because there's a lot of cost affiliated to it. There's a lot of regulatory risk. There's a lot of you know, f- you know, fine details that you have to go through. And now, for the first time in, in history, you can be a private company and never have to go public. Look at Uber as an example. They have raised oh, almost $15 billion dollars with a very small set group of investors. So my take is now reggae and there's a lot of things that are taking place that are making it easier for, for companies to come public. But my consensus is if they showcase, if the federal government, if they showcase more leniency, okay? And you can, still be, you can still be hard. You know, you can still have, you know, those, uh, you know, those laws. So if someone breaks them, you ultimately get punished. But my take is the easier and cheaper it is to go public, the better everyone in this room is going to be. And let me tell you, slowly but surely, over the last 10 years, the number of equities in North America has been going down like this. It's been going down on a consistent basis. Companies going private, companies getting bought, companies going bankrupt, companies merging, and this is this is again this is a pretty this is a pretty systemic thing. So my consensus is we're we're moving in the right direction, but it's it's we're not moving fast enough, and I don't think the government is do, on a, on a very high basis is doing anything is doing a lot to make this easier. Can you imagine what would happen? If the Trump administration basically said any company with $500 million in sales or less, if they go public, doesn't pay taxes on the income for the next three years. Can you imagine how many companies would go public? So that's my take. I mean, you know, 2005, 2006, you'd have 10 companies going public every week. you have 10 companies, if you're lucky, every three months. So this is a big problem. I see it getting a little bit better. I see it a little getting a little easier, but, but it's, still, it's still on a down curve.
2: If I could right. add just uh, to that, uh, a sh- this is a shameless plug for Canadian investing, is that th- those uh, what, have you, Paul, what have you done <laughs> to them? Uh, a lot of the dynamics that inv- <laughs> exist in the U.S. And, and as Chris mentioned, the VC market being so strong, um, you don't quite have those dynamics in Canada or a lot of those options. and. Uh, also, adding to that, the cost to go public in Canada, and especially with the CSE introducing these lower-cost models and options, have somewhat, you know, lessened the effect of the decline in Canada. And so, we've we've actually participated in a few companies that have gone private to public and at very small revenue base things that likely would never happen in the U.S. And so, if you are looking for a continuous pool of microcap investments, I think that um, Canada will have an edge over the U.S. And this is the, the
1: only nice thing I'll say about Canada today. Canada is doing it right. They have the right mindset. And now what they need to do is the same thing that has to happen in this country. We need something that is popular and well-known to go from 2 bucks to 100 The way that you get interest in a space is that everyone in the totem pole makes money, not just the guys at the top. And let me tell you, a lot of the big winners that we've had over the last two, three years have been Canadian companies. So, there is something that we can do, we can replicate to, to kind of hope, hope we can get some of that as well.
4: All right. Anybody else had anything to add to that? Nope. Uh, I'll just add, add, add one yeah. thing, and that you know, I'm not an investor in marijuana stocks, but you know, I, I, mean, I think the, the wonderful thing about microcaps is that you take a company like, which we mentioned before, like Bioscience, which went from like insecticide to like expensive pr- pills for like pregnant ladies in, in like Saskatchewan. And you know, five years from now, there's going to be some marijuana company that like moves to machine tools, and it's going to make someone a lot of money, uh, just because you know the management is 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 good, even though whatever the original plan was wrong. And that's the wonderful thing about microcaps, and why you do have to go through all those different filings. Mm-hmm. Uh, and because you know, you start off with marijuana today, you could be machine tools tomorrow, and someone's going to make a million dollars off of it. Mm-hmm. So just something to think about.
3: Chris? And I'll make my uh, required uh, token, the world is ending uh, comment. (laughs) So prepare yourselves. No, mostly I agree with everything these guys just said. What what I'll just say is if you think the (laughs) venture capital market is, is in a boom right now, right, and I would argue it's in a boom because money is cheap right now, look at some of the financials of some private companies that have recently gone public and also some companies like Uber where hedge fund managers that I know are trying to get shop shares (laughs) at 15%, 20% discounts to the company's current valuation. The company lost $2.4 billion or something like that this year. So I agree with him wholeheartedly, by the way, that deregulating will help spur an influx into the equity markets. But what I tell you is there's a big difference between having a venture capital boom and a company like Snapchat or a company like Uber that you know, Uber may never be profitable. Like it's, it's, it's a reasonable thing to say that if Uber doesn't IPO, I mean, it, it could just go under. Because they have extremely intensive capital needs. And so you have to ask, why are VCs investing in it with, with the current state of its financials? Any other questions? Kevin.
1: Absolutely. The best thing in, in Canada or in whatnot. Well, I'm, I'm looking at a stock in Australia right now.
0: So here, let me just repeat it real quick. So that question was from Kevin Shea, by the way, also a guest on the Planet Microcap podcast. Um, and his question was, why aren't we looking at global microcaps? You know, what, why aren't we seeing what's going on in Australia, for instance, or India? You know, Chris?
1: Kevin, it's an excellent point. Um, I think, obviously, it's a cultural barrier, a language barrier, the ability to access information, the ability to trade, What we did is we hired a a Ph.D. from Caltech a few years ago to basically analyze all our trades over a 10-year period and we found something very interesting. The closer a company was to us, the more likely it is that we were going to make money. So we were trying to figure out why this was the case. Was this just an anomaly? Was this something that, you know, could could you extract it and, and see if that ultimately made sense for anybody else? We thought that it was because the closer you are to someone, the the less likely it is that they'll be dishonest with you. So that's what we ultimately came with. I mean, the best best companies in microcap on a valuation basis have to be global names because value is directly correlated to how many people are seeing it. Why do you think there's never gonna be another Buffett or a Munger or any of these guys? Because when they were looking for discarded assets, there was really nowhere to go for information. I mean, there was a directory that, that would come out once a year and you would look through it. Today, because of technology and because of, you know, fast internet connections and stuff, you know, it's amazing how quickly news gets out. So you want to go to the places where there's less news. So Barron's wrote an article a few years ago, which was fantastic, by the way, called Africa, The Last Frontier. And there was a lot of big, very profitable companies in in African countries that were trading at ridiculous multiples. You know, even one guy, the guy from the international fund at T. Rowe Price, was buying one of the largest, South Korea's one of the largest electricity companies for two times earnings. So yes, the reason why we don't do it is because we don't have the necessary resources and we don't have anyone on the ground to actually go there and check things out.
2: Yeah, I, I can say that my first couple successful years in this, that's what I was doing. I was looking internationally and there was a time where I owned Canada, Australia, Sweden, and maybe one or two US stocks and the, the the quick story I always tell is there's this Swedish brewing company called uh, Koperbergs. I don't own it currently, but I did at one point, and um, it traded on the Nordic Growth Market, which is a collection of thirty Scandinavian, almost all biotech and mining companies. And here was this one brewing company that had this pear cider that was taking off. It's a little bit different than apple cider, and it was trading at four times cash flow, growing, you know, earnings or revenue thirty percent, earnings fifty percent, and. Uh, invested in it, and even to invest in it, I had to, I couldn't buy it through Fidelity on their online platform. I had to call somebody there. They had to call in and basically, like, write it down on a piece of paper and take it down to the floor, and they let me know three days later that I had gotten the shares. And so, like, if you're willing to put in that effort, I think there's tremendous value, and that stock went on to go up over 10x. But I think the issue is, is if you, if meeting with management is a core part of your strategy, and there's always a debate of whether that, should that be part of your strategy or not then i think it's difficult and what i found in canada is you had you had it was far away from the us where you had kind of the same dynamics where people weren't looking at it like they look in the us but you had the same accessibility you know i could fly to calgary faster than i could fly to atlanta and be sitting there with in, with management and getting those insights that are a core part of my strategy but if that's not part of what you do then there's in my mind no reason why international isn't a a good play
0: all right so we have time for one more question. Fawad, I saw your hand up. So uh, you have the last question. And uh, let's please, we only have like a couple minutes left. So let's keep answers to like a 30 to 45 seconds. So Fawad. So you guys all have somewhat different strategies, somewhat. I was wondering if you pay any attention to uh, the sectors where the
3: company is. And if so, what is your uh, most
0: interesting sector and what's your work? So the most interesting sector to you as of right now.
3: Yeah, real quick. So um, Maj has a uh, specialty of basically trying to find, you know, so I discussed at GEO, a lot of what we do is we try to find companies that are in inflection points. And one of the inflection points that Maj has been able to identify over the last couple of years, like really prominently and prolifically, are companies that have traditional business models but are moving to uh, software-as-a-service offerings or are going from, you know, we we just looked at a spinoff from... uh, Uh, Donnelly, RR Donnelly, which is a company that does capital market stuff, and they still do everything by paper, right? And so they're, they're getting ready to move the business to digital. And so we see a wide variety of companies that are either going from paper to digital or they offered services previously that were manual services that are now being offered as software services. And not only have we been prolific in identifying these, But I think that's probably the one area that I would look at. Because if you have a company that's doing business traditionally, and they have a traditional multiple, and you can put your finger on when that inflection point is, and you know that the market can assign not even a full SaaS multiple or a full technology multiple, but half of a SaaS multiple or half of a technology multiple, there really stands to be some attractive upside. And so yeah, I guess technology. Companies (laughs) moving from traditional to digital, regardless of their sector, really. Jason?
4: Yeah, I I don't have a particular sector that I look at. I I try and find companies that are are gonna be, hopefully, you know, good ROE in the long term. I mean, in some ways, I just invert it. I just stay away from certain sectors, stay away from certain areas. And basically, I think, um, you just gotta be, I hate to, I hate just, I I, I get into trouble when I drift away. I mean, the same thing, I understand people wanna go abroad to different countries, but every time, personally, when I, you know, it's just if I'm if I'm tempted to go to to Australia or New Zealand or Singapore, uh, you know, it, it just means I'm I'm really not doing what I can do well. So if, that's what you know. I just found that if it's just simple, if I can understand the business after looking at it a day or so, that's fine. If I don't understand the business, then you know someone else can make some money. I won't, and and that's fine. I'm fine with that too. So I, I just, there's no particular sector that. I, I just do it. It's just you know, and I don't. I don't care if someone else makes money. So people, people are just jealous of other people making money, and then just they're like, okay, you know, you, that that FOMO factor, right? Fear of moving out, moving out, if you're missing out. So you just got, <laughs> you just got to moving out too. Moving out <laughs> too. Yeah, that's, 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 yeah. That's, that happens every you know later on. You don't want to sell. You know, right? you, just, you just you just don't want to fall to all those Should behavioral economics tricks. <laughs> anyway.
2: Yeah, I, I believe that the the best sector is the one that you understand, and the worst sector is the one that you don't have any idea what you're doing in it. So it, it's kind of the classic Buffett methodology. For us, that tends to be consumer products, business services, software as a service. Those are ones that are simple, um, typically can have you know some of those moat qualities that Buffett talks about in the microcap space. And those are the ones that can grow and get bought out, at least from our um Experience for us. We don't do any mining or resource Um, We would lose a lot of money I think very quickly if we tried to and so we don't we won't even look at a single name And that's pretty different from what happens typically in Canada, but that's what works for us.
1: Chris close us up Medical devices with razor razor blade business models. Uh, We've been focused on this segment for about ten years now Uh, We usually have one or two of our core holdings in this space the reason, I mean, is that we have a deep value bent, but what we've learned is that if there is a company with a specific niche uh, and they are cash flow break even or even profitable, someone will pay eight to, times, eight to ten times sales for it eventually.
0: All right, with that, I want to thank everybody for uh, participating and being here, and thank you all my <laughs> panelists for being here, guys. Really do appreciate it. I loved it. Thank you all for tuning in to the Planet Microcap podcast. And thank you to all my guests again for coming on to the program. You can access the podcast by going on to stocknewsnow.com under podcast. Go to podbean.com and search Planet Microcap podcast or on iTunes and search Planet Microcap podcast. Stay tuned for the next Planet Microcap podcast where we'll have our next guest to discuss all things microcap. And if you have any questions or comments about the podcast, please send an email to info at com. I'd love to hear from all of you. This podcast has been brought to you by SNN Incorporated, publishers of stocknewsnow.com, the official microcap news source and the microcap review magazine. I'm your host, Robert Kraft, and thank you again for joining me on the Planet Microcap Podcast. Have a great week, everyone.